what a great joy to hear from you, Chris, this morning. Thank you so much for sharing. I'm always encouraged and humbled by the work of people like you, <laughs> people like you, people who give themselves to serving the most vulnerable uh, in the world. It's, it's a, not a calling for everybody, and it's a particular calling for very special people like you, Chris. So thank you for your enormous faith and courage being here this morning. If you've been with us uh, throughout the summer, you know we've been following the Apostle Paul around the Mediterranean Rim, kind of studying his life and ministry and um, and, and the emergence of the early church as uh, Paul went around the Mediterranean Rim starting these churches and dealing with councils and dealing with theological issues as they tried to conclude the Gentiles and if you were here last week, you must remember that they ended up in Troas. That's where we left Paul and his companions. It would have been Silas and Timothy and probably Luke. Troas was a port city right on the edge of the Aegean Sea, right across from the continent of what is now modern Europe or, or uh, Macedonia and Greece. They didn't go there because they wanted to. Paul and his companions, they wanted to probably go to Ephesus in the southwest. But they ended up in Troas by process of elimination. Sort of the way the Spirit led them by eliminating certain roads that to where they wanted to go, and they ended up in Troas. And then you might remember that this is kind of the way the Spirit leads us. God doesn't always just lay out a map for us and give us clear instructions to follow as much as we would like, but the Spirit journeys with us and leads us uh, along the way as we journey with Him and as we search uh, the heart and will and mind of the Spirit. And you might remember C.S. Lewis said, God can use all of the wrong roads to us to the right place. And Troas was the right place for them to end up last week, kind of halfway through Paul's second missionary journey, because it was in Troas that Paul received a vision from a man in Macedonia saying, come over and, and visit us and help us. You, you think that Paul probably wanted to go there anyway, because Paul wanted to, to push the boundaries of the gospel and take it to where he had never been and so we're going to pick up where we left off today, and we're journey a little bit. We're going to really stop in two places this morning. We're going to go to Philippi, and then we're going to go down to Athens, and we'll spend most of the time in Athens. But if you notice on the map, there's um, Paul and his companions in Troas, and they're going to sail. They're going to go journey um, north through the sea, and they're going to stop in Samothrace, which is a small island there. They're going to stay there for one day. Then they're going to make their way over to the port city of Neapolis, and they're going to exit the boat there and get up to Philippi. And that's where, um, and I'm not going to read, I'm going to kind of retell a little bit, and then we'll get into the reading for Athens in, in a few minutes. But Paul and his companions are now in Philippi. Philippi is, um, was, was one of the leading cities in Macedonia, but it wasn't a large city. It was kind of a, a smaller uh, Roman colony. They were there for a little while. And what was Paul's strategy? Do you remember when he enters into a new city where he hadn't been before? He wants to share the gospel and he wants to, to, to spread this movement of followers of Jesus, followers of the way. Now they're in Paul's direction at this point. Um, it, what was his strategy? His strategy was to go into the synagogue and to worship in the synagogue on the Sabbath day. And through that experience, maybe he would get the or at least be able to share the good news of Jesus. Sometimes they would, he would debate with, with uh, others in the synagogue and the rabbis and several 
But he goes into Philippi, and there's no synagogue. Um, in order, there's no synagogue in Philippi. There hasn't been one that had been formed yet. In order to form a synagogue in the first century, uh, you needed ten married men to form a synagogue. It's a patriarchal society, of course, and um, kind of unfortunate in that way. But uh, that's what it was what was required to form a synagogue. And, and so what would happen if there wasn't a synagogue, if they didn't have ten married men, Jewish men, to start a synagogue in a Roman colony, what would they do? Well, on the Sabbath day, they would the, the faithful would gather down by a river, and they would pray. And so you might remember hymns that we have uh, singing about the gathering down by the river to pray. Studying about that good old way, and who shall wear the starry crown with glory? Show me the way. Oh, sinners, let's go down. Come on down. We want to go down, down to the river to pray. I can't sing it here, and that's probably a good thing for you. But anyway, so Paul goes, and that's where we get that. This idea of going down to the river to pray. It started in the first century when the believers were not able, and actually Jewish believers were not able to form synagogues. Uh, because they, they couldn't do so, so they would gather by the river to pray. And so Paul goes down to the river, and he sees a group of women who are down there, Jewish women and non-Jewish, God-fearing Gentile women, gathering on the Sabbath day to pray. And Paul goes and sits down with them, and he begins to share the gospel with them. It doesn't tell us, the scripture doesn't tell us what Paul shared, but I immediately wondered, what would a guy say to a group of women? Um, that would be a challenging experience, I think. Um, I once was invited to preach to a group of women. They were a group of, of 75 widows in Dar es Salaam in Tanzania in 2004. And I remember being invited to preach to these women. Some of them traveled all over uh, to, to get to this gathering. Um, many of them were suffering from HIV and AIDS. Many of them lost their husbands to AIDS. It's a, it's a very difficult situation. I was like, what in the world? They should be preaching to me. Um, but all I could do was to think about the ways in which Jesus loved and ministered to women. And I wonder if Paul um, took that approach as he tailored his message for this group of women down there by the river to say that, that God's love has come to us. Finally, a promised Messiah has come in this person of, of Jesus of Nazareth. And let me tell you about this Jesus. You know, you guys aren't, you, you women aren't able to form your own synagogue. And we live in this patriarchal society. And the Roman Empire is very strong. But let me tell you about uh, this woman who has been bleeding internally for 12 years that Jesus healed and, and loved and cared for. And she healed it. And then there was another woman who was literally caught in the act of adultery and dragged out of the bedroom. They didn't bother with the man. They only dragged out the woman. They let the man go. And they brought her out into public to disgrace her and then to stone her. And Jesus stood in between those people who were going to stone her and her and advocated for her and defended her until one by one they left. And then he restored her to the new way of life. Oh, and then one time Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem and he stopped into Samaria, where you weren't supposed to, Jews weren't supposed to go. And he sat down at Jacob's well there in Samaria. And it was in the heat of day, and there was a woman who was 
coming to fish for water to come to, to get water out of the well and she had been struggling in so many relationships and Jesus sat there with her and, and talked with her and ministered to her and shared grace with her and, and invited her to, to be, have her, her thirst quenched in the light and the grace that he was offering. Oh and by the way did you know that this Jesus had, had, uh, had women who were his disciples, some of his closest disciples were women. They followed him all the way to the cross. And the first person to ever proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ was a woman. It was Mary in the garden when she was the first one to recognize his voice when he called her by name and said, Mary. And she went back to the disciples and said, I have seen the Lord. Jesus loved women, cared for women, and empowered women. I wonder if he would have taken that approach with this group of women in Philippi. And it says that they responded, and one in particular was this woman named Lydia. Uh, Lydia was a, a dealer, a, a businesswoman, a dealer of, of exotic purple fabric, of high-end purple fabric. And she was a single mom, and she was one who responded to the gospel. On her one day off, as a busy single mom, she is gathering down by the river to pray on the Sabbath day. And, and it says that, Jesus, uh, that Paul baptized her and her entire household that day. And if anyone um, ever asks you, well, where do you get this idea of, of child baptism or infant baptism in the Bible? I know we have uh, people who practice infant baptism here and others who practice adult baptism here. It's sort of a hodgepodge of Presbyterian Church, but we practice infant baptism like, like most of the denominations um, in, in, the, in the world. Uh, but this is, a, this is one of those texts where we get that And then the Philippian jailer, which comes next, also is baptized with his entire household. And so in her baptism, there at the river, she has been given a new identity. We can pause here for a moment and reflect a little bit on our own baptism. Because here Lydia is given an entirely new identity. And in this baptism, there's a symbolism, the symbolism of the washing away of sins and the dying to the old way of life. in our baptism that God says to us, I love you not for anything that you have done. There is nothing that you can do to earn my love. There is nothing that you can do to take away my love. I am giving it to you because I love you. I welcome you into my family, not by your own merits, but by mine in Jesus Christ. And so Paul and, and uh, baptizes her on this particular day and invites us to remember our baptism, and then he ministers there in Philippi for a few days, and it's interesting, though, that, that this is such a significant baptism, because Lydia is the one who then forms the Philippian church. If you read the book of Philippians, these are the, these are the people that it was written to. And this is the first church on European soil in the history of the world, and so Lydia was the first convert on European soil to form the first church, first Christian church on European soil. So Paul ministers around uh, the area, he goes back to Philippi, then she invites him to stay at her house, then he goes back to Philippi, he ministers there, and he encounters uh, this little slave girl 
who, who, is, uh, who has a demon who allows her to predict the future. So she's a fortune teller, and this whatever this uh, unclean spirit causes her to be able to predict the future and tell fortunes and whatnot. And, and the spirit is harassing Paul over and over and over again to the point where he gets so annoyed, the text says, that he decides to cast out the demon because he's so annoyed by this harassment. And, and what happens is he casts out the demon and this little girl is no longer able to tell the future. Well, how do you think that makes her slave owners feel? They're pretty upset because now they've lost their source of income. And so they take uh, Paul and Silas and they drag him into the public square and say to the community that these two people are disturbing our city and causing trouble. And so they turn him over to the magistrates. The magistrates don't know that Paul and Silas are Roman citizens, otherwise they would not have treated them this way. But um, it turns out that they decide to have them flogged. And so Paul is flogged for the first time, Paul and Silas. And to be flogged is to be beaten with rods 39 times, because, you know, 40 would be inhumane. So 30, 39 times, Paul was flogged. Now, I kind of geeked out on this a little bit. I wanted to know, what was Paul flogged with? What were these rods like? And if you can see the, the picture, I'm not sure if we're, we're, we're working our pictures up. Pictures are good? Okay. You can see in this first picture here, um, this is what the, what the Romans used to flog Paul and Silas. You can see on the, on the top of this, it's basically a bundle of birch or elm sticks wrapped with leather, and at the top there's an axe. And it's called a fasces, or a, or a fascia, or a fasces. And it was not only a tool, but it was also a symbol. It was a symbol of Roman authority and Roman power and Roman strength and might. And so at the top of the fasces there was an axe, that, an axe head that shows that uh, Rome has the authority for capital punishment. So if you threaten their way of justice, if you threaten their authority, they can punish you in that way. And the bottom of it was, was used for beating. So we have authority over capital punishment, we have authority for corporal punishment. And that's what they would have used to, and they would, you know, this was a, a, a thing to sort of scare people into obedience, into sort of public um, control in a way. Now, I, I posted something on Facebook uh, the other day that said, well, what does, what, what does the, the Roman, what does Paul's flogging, a 1936 U.S. dime, and the Lincoln Memorial have in common? Well, here's a picture of a 1936 U.S. dime. On the back of the dime, you can see right here is the fasces that uh, came here from, from Rome. It has the axe at the top, and you can see olive branch wrapped around the fasces as a way of sort of saying this is how we um, uh, enforce peace. This is how we keep peace um, in, in this way. And take a look at the next picture of Abraham Lincoln, the Lincoln Memorial, right? Under Lincoln's hands there on those pillars are the fasces from, from Rome, one fasces on, on each side. And you can, if you were to visit the Lincoln Memorial, down the steps in the front are even huge engravings of the fasces with, with the axe. And I didn't even know that until this week, um, but it kind of makes you wonder a little bit. Uh, this is what Paul, our beloved apostle, was beaten with in the first 
he gets thrown into jail, and uh, and, and after being flogged, they would have you know wrecked his back, and they would bend him over and flog him, and all sorts of concussion bruises and nastiness there. Um, and then they throw him into jail, and they strap him into chains, and and, uh, and Paulus and Silas start singing and rejoicing, you know, because that's what you do when you're flogged and thrown into jail. <laughs> An earthquake happens at night and um, startles the jailer, and the jailer converts, and, um, and, and Paul and Silas are sort of set free. The magistrates figure out that Paul's a Roman citizen, and it's kind of like, oops, we shouldn't have done that, and they just kind of ask him to leave. And so from here, Paul leaves Philippi, and, and they go to, they make a couple stops, and they make their way over to Berea. And it is in Berea where Paul will weep, um, Silas and Timothy and his companions, and they will send him down to Athens. Uh, and so Paul will go to Athens, and his companions will catch up with him in a little while. And we're going to pick up the reading there today in, in Acts chapter 17, verses 16 through 30. Listen to the word of the Lord. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was deeply distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he argued in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons, and also in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Also some Epicurean and Stoic philosophers debated with him. Some said, what does this babbler want to say? Others said, he seems to be a proclaimer of foreign divinities. This was because he was telling the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. So they took him and brought him to the Areopagus and asked him, May we know what this teaching is that you are presenting? It sounds rather strange to us. So we would like to know what it means. Now all the Athenians the foreigners living there would spend their time in nothing but telling or hearing something new. Then Paul stood in front of the Areopagus and said, Athenians, I see how extremely religious you are in every way. For as I went through the city and looked carefully at the objects of your worship, I found among them an altar with the inscription to an unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, he who is Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in shrines made by human hands, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mortals life and breath and all things. From one ancestor he made all nations to inhabit the whole earth, and he allotted the times of their existence and the boundaries of the places where they would live, so that they would search for God and perhaps grope for him and find him. Though indeed he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as some of your poets have said. For we too are his offspring. Since we are God's offspring, you ought not to think that the deity is like gold or silver or stone, 
an image formed by the art and imagination of mortals. While God has overlooked the times of human ignorance, now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Because he has fixed a day on which he will have the world judged in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. This is the word of the Lord. Thank God to God. Well, when the Apostle Paul arrived in Athens, he discovered that it was a place where people spent their time in nothing but telling or hearing something new. I think that's striking. I think it's partly Luke's way of kind of mocking Athens a little bit. This Athens, as you know, is, is, is the place that where classical philosophy originated. It's the birthplace of, of the classical world. And it kind of reminds me a little bit, it sort of sounds a little bit like perhaps many of our, um, our academic culture in many of our uh, major cities in the United States, which is filled with people who love information, especially new information. It doesn't even matter if it's true or not, as long as it's new, that's what matters. Uh, the latest about who's in and who's out, who's up and who's down, and what is the latest hope that will save us. And so it's not surprising, though, that when Paul... Uh, uh, also discovers in Athens that there are all kinds of idols. These two things go hand in hand. A multitude of idols and a desire to hear and tell all things new all the time. Um, because they kept having to make room for their latest hope. The new thing that people wanted to worship. Athena's huge um, ivory, gold idols stood in the midst of the city and they said that the spear that she had could be seen, the tip of the spear could be seen from about 40 miles away. Surrounding her in Athens, surrounding Athena, right in the midst of Athens, uh, were all these other images of Zeus, Neptune, Apollo, Venus, Diana, and the rest of the Greek pantheon. There were even the lesser gods of Olympus, the gods of the water, the earth, the underworld. By the way, if someone says to you, isn't your church named after a false idol? <laughs> Just tell them, no, it's named after that mountain over there. And then let it be that. So <laughs> I heard that that might have been sacred. Anyway, in Athens, there was always room in Athens for a new god. All you had to do was place it alongside the other gods. And so we're told that when Paul saw all of these idols, he was deeply distressed. His soul was deeply distressed. And the word for distress in the Greek, the original word there, carries the connotation of, uh, of like having a seizure in his soul. Like Paul's soul was seizing, was twisting and turning entered into Athens, and he saw all of these idols that people were worshipping. Now remember, Paul, as a Jew, was trained under Gamaliel in Jerusalem. He was a rabbinical scholar of sorts, and he knew, right, he grew up in a tradition knowing how angry 
God again at the site of idol worship. The worst judgment Israel faced in history always came in response to worshiping and adoring idols. So what's an idol? An idol is anything that we turn to, anything or anyone that we turn to to save us, to give us fulfillment, to give us hope, or our deepest sense of joy in life. Throughout the Hebrew history, there would be times when the people grew tired of looking for salvation from a God who was so demanding that they could not control. You might remember when Moses was up there with uh, God literally receiving the Ten Commandments written into stone that they couldn't handle the fact that their leader is gone and they don't know where he's coming and we certainly can't control this God. And so they fashioned their own God that they could worship, that they could control, that they could make look really nice and pretty and, and, and that would make promises but no demands. This is what we, what we prefer in an idol, isn't it? All promises, no demands. That's what we would like in a God. A God who doesn't make any demands. A God who we can control and a God who promises lots of good things. And so they would turn their hearts toward the gods of wood and stone that they could fashion with their own hands. They promised fertility. They promised prosperity. And they made little demands and they did not care how you lived your life. All promises have no demands. Now, so wouldn't you think that in Athens, the city of Socrates, the city of Plato, the birthplace of classical culture, a city filled with really, really smart people, wouldn't you think that a city like Athens would not worship so many idols? But history has proven otherwise. Uh, the smarter we are, the more tempted we are by the illusion that we can control life through the right idols. Status, materialism, achievement. Being smart doesn't free us from the temptation of idolatry. It just gives us the opportunity to worship multiple idols at the same time. Many of us knock ourselves out at work to become successful thinking that that will fulfill us. But we're also smart enough to know that life has to be more than work, and so we knock ourselves out to be super mom and super dad. And because we know that the kids will someday move on and, and leave home, we, we try to save for retirement. And because we know that retirement would not be very fun if we were sick, we invest in our health along the way. We try to stay healthy. And we try recreation, and we try education, and the market, and a bigger house, and a new car, and on and on and on. Of course, none of these things, in and of themselves, are idols, unless we're looking to them to save us. Unless we're looking to them to give us the joy that we are so desperately searching for in our lives. And of course, this is exactly what we are expecting them to do. Since we're smart, we've learned to diversify, we've got a lot going. John Calvin said that the heart, the human heart, is a perpetual factory of idols. So we're always sort of imagining and creating new idols out of our hearts. And surely we're going to think, we think that, well, one of these things will work out. Maybe my kids, maybe my health. 
one of these, if I invested in all these things, one of these things will work out. But then late at night, what happens when we lie awake thinking about our lives and reflecting and wondering if we're doing enough, and we feel a little sense that maybe we're not even doing enough, because in spite of everything that we're doing, it still feels like something's missing. How can that be? Paul notices this. He picks up on it. And in fact, the Athenians, they, they even had their own god for that feeling that something's missing. They called it the unknown god. Paul picked up on this. That they had this idol for this thing that's missing. For the unknown god, the missing god. That's the idol to which we're actually most devoted in our lives. It's the only one we haven't yet discovered, the one we're still searching to fill our needs. The unknown God tells us to be discontent with what we have. It's the unknown God that says to us, the life that God has given you is not good enough. So you need to go and search for more. Get a new spouse, a new house, a new job, a new place, whatever it might be, because life as you know it is not good enough. That life God has given you isn't good enough. You deserve more. So go and keep searching new ideas, new experiences. It says you haven't found the right thing to say to just yet. That's the unknown God. Worst of all, the unknown God makes us frantic, worrying about everything that is unknown in our future. So again, late at night, it tears your mind apart with fear. You toss and turn, wondering, what if? One awful scenario after another invades your thoughts, and all these voices of doubt and anxiety keep banging around in your head. What if COVID doesn't go away? What if there's an outbreak in the school? What if my kid doesn't get that education that I have planned for him or her to get? What if I can't keep climbing the corporate ladder like I had set out to do? Or what if it's just not going to get better? What if I can't get together? What if, what if you know, we can even make worship into an idol? What if we can't worship in, in person for a whole two years? Um, on and on and on, these, these questions and these fears and these worries and these doubts, they play over in our mind. And I want to declare to you that, that, that that's not the voice of the God, of the true God. That's the voice of the unknown God, speaking worry and fear. Because the voice of the true God does not make you panic, does not make you frantic. He is not worried, and he has no interest in us being worried either. This is the unknown God that we're listening to late at night. Jesus said that the, that the sheep recognize the voice of the shepherd, and only his voice and and, and they won't go when a stranger calls their name because they don't, they don't recognize the stranger's voice. It's only the shepherd's voice. And so the most important thing in the fold of God is that we will learn to discern the voice of our good shepherd amid all the other voices that come to us, the voices of strangers, the voices of false gods, the voices of masters, the unknown God, and all these things. And this is why we worship and we pray every day, and we read our scriptures every day, even if it's just for a couple minutes to center ourselves in the word. It is all a way of training our ears 
we hear the voice of the shepherd who calls us by name and tells us that we are loved and that he has a security in him. It's all the way to spend time with the shepherd. And you have to do that, but we'll be drawn by the voices of those idols that make you fear and think you haven't done enough in your life. This is why Paul's soul seized and, and turned when he entered into Athens. It wasn't because he was just so disgusted by all these things. It was because he was burdened by the ways in which these idols were tearing apart the hearts and lives of these Athenians. He could see it. He could see right through it all. And so Paul began to preach. First he preached in places of worship where devout people were gathered. Because even religious people can be drawn to idols. The church can be an idol if you expect it to save you. Just because our name is on the rolls doesn't mean we know God. Paul also preached in the marketplace there in Athens, where people were bowing more before the idol of commerce. And then he preached to the Epicureans and the Stoics, which are two competing philosophies uh, that are very much alive in our world today. The Epicureans, you know, they, they taught that the world was a cruel and hard place and so you might as well uh, just carve out some serenity in your life, some relaxation uh, in your life. You know, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow will die. This is a hard world. The Stoics taught almost the opposite. That they taught that um, what what the world needs is for everyone to pursue their duty, to assume responsibility, assign roles in life. Isn't it significant? that these two competing philosophies were developed within about five years of one another in the third century BC. It's because the existence of one sort of calls for the existence of the other. Uh, after we have been beating ourselves to death with work and duty and responsibility, you know, we get a little tired and we need a little relaxation, a little vacay, a little, uh, you know, a little serenity. But then after now we've been indulging ourselves in pina coladas on the beach for a while, our leaders start knocking themselves out to get us to get back to work. But we know that, as I kind of mentioned in, in, in prayer with the rest worship this morning, that, that there is no serenity without worship. But that is where we find our deep place of rest, is in worship. And work without Worship rest. It's just another form of idolatry, making our work into an idol. And so as Paul talked about the God who revealed himself in Jesus Christ, the Athenians took him to the Areopagus to tell more about this God. Paul, now, some people think that the Areopagus was just a sort of a place where all the great philosophers debated their great ideas. The reality is that the Areopagus was a court where Paul may or may not have been actually placed on a trial in this moment. We don't know that for sure, but it was a court. And here's Paul in, in a court setting defending the Christian faith. And he begins by offering them a more accurate description of the unknown God. Let me tell you about this unknown God. I love it. He meets them right where they are culturally aware. This unknown God 
Let me tell you about him. He's not just one more competing demand on your soul, Paul claims. He's the creator. The creator God doesn't live in shrines made by human hands. Just as the Stoics claim, your own philosophers claim, in him we live and move and have our being. So he's drawing on their own language and their own yearnings to show them and reveal to them what it is that they're searching for. And so far, everyone was still listening, right? Because it all just sounded very good. This makes a lot of sense. I, this is reasonable. I can follow you. And, and then he goes on to say two things that were very unpopular. He talked about judgment and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, of course, we've never enjoyed hearing about judgment. We don't want to hear about judgment. We don't like judgment. We think we left behind all that angry judgmental talk in the Old Testament, and now in the New Testament, we have a much more compassionate and you know, loving God in the New Testament. We left that judgment stuff behind. But even a cursory reading of the Bible will show that the love and judgment of God throughout the entire scripture lives side by side. It's not like one and we replace one with, with the other. In both the Old and New Testaments, the love and judgment of God coexist. They are integrally related. It's because he loves us that God reveals his judgment to us. See, the opposite, we think that if he loves us, he wouldn't judge us. Judgment is, and, and judgment is the opposite of love. But the opposite of love isn't judgment or even hatred or anger. The opposite of love is indifference. And God is anything but indifferent towards you. God loves you that, as an old pastor said to say, me and others, uh, God loves you just the way that you are, but he loves you so much that he won't let you stay that way. He loves you so much that by grace he presents his judgments upon your bad turns in life in order to offer correction. This is different than condemnation. God doesn't condemn us. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ because that was settled on the cross. Jesus took our condemnation upon himself. So the purpose of God's judgment is not to condemn us. The purpose of God's judgment is to correct us and to get us back on the right course. As Paul tells the Athenians, to invite us to turn from these idols, to repent, to turn from the idols who have led us astray. Then Paul really loses his audience by saying the way that we find the North Star, the way that we turn toward the right way of living life, is through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And it's then that people begin to scoff at Paul. Because it's not just the church's message of judgment that makes people doubt. It's actually our message of hope. The judgments have been written on our hearts. We know that there's a right and wrong. It's all written on our hearts. But the hope is, is, is hard to believe. Paul later tells the church in Corinth that the whole gospel stands or falls with And so if you're going to reject the gospel, at least do it for the right reason. If you deny the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And if you're going to accept the gospel, then why? It all turns on the resurrection from the dead. Now, this is not the same as the philosophical belief of immortality of the soul. Immortality of the soul is something that the Greeks had believed long before Paul showed up. And the immortality of the soul promises that you will live on 
as an individual forever, even after you shed your body. We in this church do believe that the soul perseveres, but that's not at the heart of our faith. Our hope is based on the resurrection, which claims that Jesus has defeated death for us. That means then that, that our hope means that we don't have to be afraid of death, physical death, or even the death of our relationships, the death of our dreams, the death of our jobs, the death of our health, the death of anything that we will eventually lose. So to be clear, the resurrection doesn't claim that we don't experience death, it claims that death is just the beginning of a new life. We can have that life, that new life today, if we just let go of trusting in all of the things that we're holding on to that are going to lead us, that we're going to lose anything. Okay, so the Bible doesn't spend much time speculating about heaven, or the afterlife, or the next world. The Bible's primary concern with the resurrection of Jesus from the dead is to shape how we live in this life. It's to free us from anything that would cause us so the point of the resurrection is not to have an individuality without limits, but, but to free us to give ourselves to the right things. It's meant to free us to give ourselves to the fight against evil and injustice and unrighteousness. Athanasius, a fourth century bishop of Alexandria, said, Do you want proof of the resurrection? Look at how the followers of Christ live. Now he said that in the fourth century, right? So for those first 300 years, for more than 300 years, the church was heavily persecuted and oppressed. But they were known for their self-sacrifice, their generosity, and eventually they won over the empire because in the face of intense persecution, they chose the way of love instead. And they won over the empire because the members of the church weren't afraid. And they weren't afraid because they had already died to this life. In their baptism, they had died to the old life and accepted a new one. So they weren't preoccupied with vain idols or silly promises. They were free. Free to give themselves to the right things. Free to turn back to the North Star. And free to pursue justice. That's what our society today is dying to find. That's what our society is dying We need justice for the poor and the hungry. We need right relationships between nations and races. And hardest of all, we need family members. We need to support our local rescue mission and the work that they are doing in this way. In our hearts, judgment that offers the right way of life. We know it. But we can't follow it because in our anxiety we're bowing for idols that promise what they can't deliver. Invest yourself in a whole lot of recreation. That's not going to work. St. John of the Cross was a Carmelite monk in the latter half of the 16th century. And he was beaten and tortured in Spain. He 
to the reform that he was bringing to the church. And he was thrown into prison, and it was when he was suffering in prison that he wrote a book called The Dark Night of the Soul. His point was that God blesses or rewards those who turn to prayer in a moment in their lives when they lose everything that they've spent trying to gain. If they haven't physically lost what they cherish, then they've lost the meaning and hope that the cherished thing provides for them. And this is what he calls the dark night. It's this sense, deep sense of loss or abandonment or privation. The pain is so raw and so real that the only thing you can think of is that certainly God has abandoned it too. If you've ever lost someone you deeply, deeply, deeply love, you know that pain of utter abandonment. And on this dark night, if they choose, John says, if you choose, in the midst of that pain, to turn to prayer, they have the choice to do nothing else but to hang on the cross of Jesus while everything in life is stripped away. And they think they are losing God, but what they are actually losing is their instrumental need for God. This sense that, that God is, is here to add to all of my life. But when everything else is stripped away, and you've lost even your instrumental use for God, and you can still turn to God in prayer, John says in that moment, God bestows this very special blessing on you. That's called divine grace. And you can meet and encounter the true God without all of the ornaments that we put all over uh, our desires and our intentions for God. And so the question is, will you still love God? doesn't come with any added benefit. If it's just God plus nothing. The reason that John says this is a blessing is because when we say yes to that question, that is when we are finally free. Never before that. That is when we are finally free. Because we no longer live in fear of losing anything. Now we hold all the blessings of life with open hands, because we know that these blessings will come, and they will go, and new ones will replace them, and those will disappear too. But the soul is always held securely in the hand of God, who never lets go of us. And so as followers of Jesus are meant to live our lives with open hands, with open hands, not just empty hands, but with generosity. So the invitation today is an invitation to die with Christ, to remember our baptism, and that in that death that we might finally discover new life, and in that new life finally live ourselves to things that will never God, we thank you for your grace. We thank you that you are the one true God, that the unknown God that we seem to serve for day in and day out. So may we not search anymore for anything but for the living God that we know lives in us. And may we find our souls quenched.